You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. Uh, this is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Stuart Firestein, who is a professor of neurobiology at Columbia University, and he's also the author of two books that I have right here, most recently a book called Failure, Why Science is So Successful, and that was preceded by Ignorance, How It Drives Science. There's a bit of a theme here, but you also have a course on ignorance, which uh, I guess you have to be have tenure to offer that course, and, <laughs> and uh, a TED Talk. And so look, both of these books, I found them highly interesting and provocative, and I, I think it, it kind of goes contrary to the popular conception of what science is and how it works. I don't I think a lot of scientists would recognize kind of what you're describing when you say that science is really kind of it's kind of about mucking around. Right. It's about walking around and feeling your way through a dark room looking for a black cat. And the black cat might not even be there, right? And so, you know, the reason why I found this, this interesting is that if you kind of were to hear this description and not think about, you know, the, the detailed implementation of this, then you might just think it's about, you know, blind people wandering around aimlessly. But I think you really dig into this idea that Louis Pasteur articulated, which is that chance favors the prepared mind. And I think you said that failure favors the prepared mind. And so there's good failure and bad failure. There's failure that's kind of useless and there's failure that's kind of useful. And science is really about charting a course that is a sequence of failures that lead to additional questions and insight. So there's so many wonderful quotes in this, in both of these books and, and wonderful kind of provocative ideas. Maybe where we can start is tell us a bit about what inspired you to start offering a course on ignorance. And I think, again, this is something I think you, you need to kind of have tenure to, to propose this to your, uh, or maybe you're the department chair. You can do it. You can do anything you want, right? Now I'm the former chair, and this may be why I'm the former chair. <laughs> Actually, I'm quite happy to be the former chair. It's a much better position. I came to this course really because I have two major roles at the university. One is that I run a laboratory where we do research on the brain. Most of our research uses the olfactory system, the sense of smell as a sort of a model system. And I work with graduate students and postdocs there. And it's really a pleasure. We think up experiments. We talk about all the stuff that we could find out. We try things. We look at data. It's a remarkable lifestyle. I must say it's wonderful. It's challenging and exhilarating in many ways. I also, my other responsibility is to teach a course to undergraduates, introduction to neurobiology, introduction actually to cell and molecular neurobiology to make it sound really awful. And it's a semester long course on the principles of neuroscience. In fact, we use a textbook called Principles of Neural Science, which if you look on Amazon has a shipping weight of 7.5 pounds, that happens to be about twice the weight of a human brain. So here we have a book about the brain that weighs twice as much as a brain. And I thought, it's just full of facts. And by the end of the course, in my 25 lectures that were also full of facts, these students must have had the misguided idea the incorrect idea that we must know pretty much everything there is to know about the brain. And that's certainly not true. And also they probably began to think that the job of a scientist, what we do in the lab all day is find these facts that we can then stick in textbooks, which they're forced to memorize. And that's not the case either. When I go to a conference or a meeting, fellow scientists, we don't talk about what we know. We talk about what we don't know, what we'd like to know. And so I thought, well, maybe that's what we should start teaching these kids a little bit of, that what we don't know, because that's really where the cool science is. That's really where science happens. So I started a course on ignorance. Now I use the word ignorance to be intentionally provocative. I don't mean stupidity or a callous indifference to facts, but I do mean the, the really immense amount that we don't know, so much more than what we do know, and so much more interesting. Well, I found the part on how you teach science to be fascinating, right? You you talk about the bulimic approach, right? Where you cram yourself full of stuff and then you regurgitate it on the exams. And you proposed a slightly different approach, which is it's kind of like the case method where 
you go back in time and you teach them maybe a bit about the four humors, <laughs> and you teach them a, about phrenology, and you teach them about the, I don't know, the pre-Copernican view of the universe, right? I mean, when we learn science nowadays, we typically don't learn about all the wrong theories. We learn about what is considered the established theory. And I, I don't think we are taught in an introductory class that these are provisional theories and that you can expect them to be modified, replaced and found wanting, you know, over the next couple of decades. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely critical issue. I mean, science is littered with failure, littered with wrong turn and cul-de-sacs and all of those sorts of things, many of which were absolutely critical, actually, to, to moving us along. But we instead teach this sort of mythical arc of discovery, this heroic narrative of geniuses making one discovery after another, which I think is bad for two reasons. I mean, one is it's just simply not true, and it gives this false sense of what science is. And I also think that it tends to put a lot of kids off of science. I mean, they read this thing, they go, oh, these geniuses discovered all this stuff. I'm no genius, so... Presumably, I shouldn't be a scientist, and that's just not the case. Phrenology, since you brought it up, is a very good example. Phrenology was, you know, this where you feel the bumps on people's heads and you supposedly can tell the something about their personality. And there are these, you can find these heads around, you know, with little areas marked off for, you know, happiness or cheery or pessimistic or this or that, whatever you're supposed to be. And that was practiced. As a legitimate science, I mean, they had journals, people had meetings, they did, quote, experiments. It was practiced as a legitimate science for well over, well, nearly 50 years in the 1800s. Now, we know that there's absolutely no basis to it whatsoever, but actually there are two very foundational principles of modern neuroscience that were first elucidated in phrenology, and that is that, number one, everything is in the brain. So love, anger hatred, whatever, good feelings, bad feelings, they're in the brain. They're not in your heart. They're not in your liver, your spleen, your gut. They're none of those places. They're in your brain. And the second thing is that the brain has sort of localized areas that specialize in one thing or another. Now, they weren't what the phrenologists thought, but that is certainly the case, that a lot of the brain is compartmentalized. And so those two ideas continue to be current ideas in neuroscience, even though they were part of a, what we would now consider a complete pseudoscience, really, a, a false science. So that's what happens in science. Revision is a victory, as the great historian of science at Princeton said. In science, revision is a victory. That's very important. But isn't the kind of reward structure geared towards the folks who come up with answers rather than the folks who come up with, with questions, right? Or, you know, if we, we look back in time, I mean, Edison said, you know, I've never failed. I've just learned, you know, 10,000 ways that things don't work. But if that's all he did, right, was to rule out all the things that didn't work and he never actually came up with the light bulb, like no one would be talking about Edison right now. So does the failure, do you only get credit for the failure if it ultimately kind of leads to something that you could characterize as success in some way? Well, I mean, I, I hope not, but yes, probably to some extent that's true. But look, you know, we're really, in general, I think, bad at incentivizing things the proper way. Almost every system we have seems to have a somewhat distorted incentive structure from the one we know should be there, from the one we know would be more productive. But nonetheless, that's the one we're stuck with, and science isn't immune to that either. I do think, however, that the idea of failure in science is does go beyond the notion of it being retrospectively valuable in the sense that it's not only valuable because, oh, well, I know I've learned that mistake and I won't make it, I'll be successful. So if I fail a few times, eventually it will lead me to be successful. That's there, but I don't think that's the crucial reason for failure in science. I don't see failure and success, at least in science, as two sides of the same coin I see them more like two horses pulling a wagon in the same direction. Failure is just an integral part of the process in science. And you do it and you know that's how you'll get to knowledge. One way or another, you will get there, but you may fail a lot doing it. Right. The other thing is you seem to be you're, you're critical of this hypothesis driven inquiry right now. Look, this is what we teach. I mean, this is this is so fundamental to how we teach science. It's fundamental about how you write grant applications. And you argue that, you know, maybe we, we shouldn't start with the hypothesis. 
right? What would be the alternative to starting with the hypothesis? And what's wrong with testing hypotheses as your you know, main occupation as a scientist? Well, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. I mean, what I object to are two things. What I object to is calling it the scientific method, as if there was a method or a recipe and you could just follow these simple steps and you'll make discoveries because that's just, it's a much messier project than that is. And so the notion of method is problematic to me. I've never known anybody who made a discovery by following the scientific method. Now, we may apply it afterwards. After we make a discovery, we may go back and use this sort of methodological approach to observing and hypothesizing further and experimenting and so forth. So you may use it a little bit towards the end, but it's not the way to discover things. I mean, I say... Uh, I suppose this is okay. I mean, I said that the way we really discover most things is we spend a lot of time farting around, frankly. And we often, we have some vague ideas, sure. But most of the time, the important thing is to be open to the stuff you don't, just don't expect to be there. The stuff that happens unexpectedly, because that's where the interesting stuff almost always is. We're just not that good at it in the end. And so we should recognize that. So, and of course, there's a side issue here too, which is forming a hypothesis too soon, getting an idea about how it works too early on, I think biases everything you do from there on in. You begin to, whether you like it or not, whether you think you're doing it or not, unconsciously or consciously, you're paying more attention to the data that supports your hypothesis than the data that fails to. There's always an excuse for the outlier or something to that effect, you know, that, that you can get rid of so that your hypothesis is supported, you know? And that's a problem because you want to avoid that bias if you can. Right, so I, I teach a course on traditional statistics and I teach another course on data science. And, you know, we kind of go back and forth. There's this hypothesis-driven inquiry, but then there's this kind of data-driven discovery. And it seems like the data-driven discovery, that's the kind of like you're mucking around looking to see if there's anything interesting. But then, you know, at some point you're going to, try and, you know, test the hypothesis. And so you're saying that hypothesis testing comes in later, or you also use, you say, maybe we shouldn't use the word hypothesis, but we should talk about models instead. What is that? Is that just a, is that just a semantic point? Or is, is there something about the, the use of the word model that, that reorients the way you think about the phenomenon? We tend to do this with students now. I mean, the word hypothesis has this sort of actual old sort of sound to it for most of us in the lab. I mean, if I sort of talking about hypotheses to the graduate students, they become even older than I am somehow. That's sort of an ancient thing. So model building is now seen as a more dynamic idea. Hypothesis somehow or another has about it something that's complete, that this is the way it is. This is the explanation. Whereas a model just takes the data you have puts it together this way or that way, futzes around with it until something begins to take shape, you hope. And sometimes it doesn't for quite a while. Sometimes you put it aside and it takes some new data to come in. A hypothesis isn't quite as flexible, if you will, as a model, it seems to me. And so that's the way we like to think instead, that we're slowly building this model up without any, without, with as few preconceived notions as possible. Of course, it's impossible to be completely blank, as it were. Well, I think you mentioned that people who think in terms of hypotheses, they, they become like fans of a football team, right? And so they become wedded to their hypotheses. Whereas, I guess when it comes to models, people are more capable of pluralism, right? Where they can kind of simultaneously have a bunch of different, maybe even inconsistent models in their mind at the same time, they're more likely to... I think that's, yeah, that, that's a great point. That's a crucial point, this ability to hold a few different ideas, even as you say, inconsistent or incommensurable ones in your mind at the same time, whereas a hypothesis is pretty strict. You believe it, you know, you, it's your cute idea about how things work. So of course you want to do it, you know, eventually it might get named after you. Wow, that would be fabulous. So naturally you're going to push for that. We get in a lot of trouble that way. I think you mentioned that there's only been one Nobel Prize that was awarded to someone whose experiment failed. But you say also that, you know, when your experiment is a success, that's just measurement, right? But when your experiment is, is a failure, that's what we call discovery, right? Yeah, so I should, I should point out that it was Enrico Fermi who actually said that, but I'm quoting him there. But it's, yes. Now, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that in science, as in what you teach, both measurement and discovery are important. 
But it is nice to make a discovery. There's certainly something special about that. But there's nothing wrong with measurement. That's fine. I'm, I'm not against success. I like to see experiments succeed now and again, but they're often more interesting when they don't quite succeed the way you think they would. And then you have to go back and think about. So I, I like to say that if you think science is about the unknown, which is an almost trivial thing to say, but if we believe that it's about what we don't know, ignorance and so forth, then the deepest kind of unknown is really the unknown unknown, right? The stuff we don't even know, we don't know, which is, you know, is a phrase that was unfortunately made somewhat famous or popular by Donald Rumsfeld, the then secretary of the Defense Department, when we had our misguided efforts in the Middle East, I suppose. And he worried about these things. He testified to Congress and said, well, there were things we didn't know, but the what really got us was the stuff we didn't know we didn't know. And he was ridiculed a bit for that, but it's not really an unclever statement. And actually, I just to set the record straight, I've learned that the first use of that phrase that I've ever been able to find is actually in a poem by D.H. Lawrence in 1917 called New Heaven and Earth. It's a rather long kind of lyrical poem about the transition from this life to the next. But towards the end, there's a stanza that goes something like, now there, here was I with my hand stretched out, touching the unknown the real unknown, the unknown unknown. And that really is the deepest kind of ignorance. I mean, how do you get to what you don't even know you don't know? And I would say the only way I know to do that is failure. You do an experiment because you don't know something and you think you can find it out and the experiment fails. Well, now you know that there was actually something else you didn't know you didn't know. And you have to go back to the beginning again and think about that. And that's the only way I know to get to that really deep kind of unknown which is where we want to be, right? So as a practical course, right, if you're if you're a scientist and you want to do science, and I liked how you described kind of science as, or doing science as really kind of searching for explanations. I, I really like that description, right? Because I think it's very different from how people think of science as discovering truths. And I think you you point out that, no, it's oh, really yeah, kind well, of- that's a bad idea. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like searching for, <laughs> for explanations. But say plotting your career trajectory or your plotting your next three years at the lab or you're applying for some kind of, you know, grant application, you can't kind of say, well, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to fail this way, this way, and this way, right? And I'm going to, you know, like you're not going to describe the list of failures or at least, you know, the, the modes of failures in that kind of plan. So is there a way to orchestrate this sequence of failures in, in a way that's more likely to yield good explanations, right? If you're skeptical about the scientific method, surely you're not farting around totally randomly. There has to be some method to the madness, yeah. right? Yes, there is. But I, I, I think that's a big question. There are several kinds of answers to it. There are trivial answers, like about how to write a grant proposal that includes failure, but doesn't include failure. And there are tricks to doing that, you know, and certain kind of grantsmanship. Sidney Brenner, a famous molecular biologist and Nobel laureate, passed away a couple of years ago. I remember he once told me, we were talking about funding and at some meeting, and he said, oh, well, you know, NIH grants come in two parts. The first part is all the experiments you've already done. And the second part is all the experiments you're never going to do. <laughs> and that's how to write a successful grant. And I mean, there's a little bit of truth to that, of course. Not totally, but a little bit of it. So that's the trivial answer to how to plot failures out. The more, the deeper answer, I suppose, is to be alert to failures, to recognize that these are, you know, these are the places where creativity occurs and to not be, and to have the patience with it. I think that's the crucial thing is patience. There's a term that was coined by John Keats, the poet, called negative capability which sounds a bit oxymoronic to have negative capability. But his idea was that it, it was to put yourself in the state of mysteries, ignorance, unknowns, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Now, you can reach after fact and reason. You can reach after explanation. But you ought not to be irritable about it. You ought to be patient about it. And he considered this to be the most creative state for the literary mind. I think it's the most creative state for any mind. I don't care whether it's literary, scientific, economic, engineering, doesn't make any difference. This idea of being patient with failure and accepting much more of it than I think we're willing to accept. I don't think it's as, it's not as critical as an issue as in a way you make it sound. I mean, 
It's baseball season now, thankfully, because they managed to settle the, the strike business and all that. And you look at the best baseball players, the best hitters ever. And they, you know, they have well, Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, both had batting averages, 340 or something like that. But that meant that they failed two-thirds of the time they came up to the plate. Two-thirds of the, their at-bats were failures. They just went back to the dugout, presumably. The best baseball players today bat maybe 300. It's a third of the, less than a third of the time they succeed. And they managed to make 14 to $20 million a year doing that, which I'd say is not so bad, you know? So I think we underestimate the amount of failure that's acceptable. And we also, to some extent, underestimate the size of the failure that's acceptable. But I don't think you want a catastrophe necessarily. But one of the things that science does, I think, is it allows you to fail quite often, but non-catastrophically. I mean, a failure is just not the end of the road in science. It may be in business. I mean, it may be that when you go bankrupt and belly up, well, that's the end of it, and you go on to something else. But in science, it's not the end of the road. And so learning that ability to fail non-catastrophically is, I think, one of the treasures of science that, you know, we have now that we have science, now that we've since we invented science. Well, what's the difference in kind of failure and error, right? So when we think about learning, right, you know, learning is all about, you know, looking for the error, right? If you're doing data science, for instance, I mean, you know, you need to kind of go out and figure out, all right, where, where are the false positives, where are the false negatives? And then you're, you're crafting your, you know, your algorithm and making it more precise and more accurate by, you know, basically managing those errors. Isn't that kind of the same thing? Like when you're, you're trying to tease out some explanation, you know, you, you throw out an explanation and then, okay, it fails to account for this. Then you go back and you rework it and then it fails to account for that. And then you kind of, you know, rework it. Isn't that kind of similar or is there a difference between kind of error and failure? In my mind, they're virtually synonymous. I mean, errors may be occasionally, maybe you could say errors are more accidental than failures. Not that you fail on purpose, but that a failure is sort of built into a process, whereas an error is sort of something that happens by accident or inattention or something like that. But not necessarily. I mean, you can make intellectual errors that are, you know, well thought out and wrong. <laughs> That's okay. So I don't really see that big a difference between them. There's a great quote, I think it's by Benjamin Franklin, arguably America's first scientist, who said, all in all, the, I don't, this, I won't get this exactly right, but that, that all in all, the sum of man's errors are far more interesting than that of what he's found out. I mean, truth is kind of narrow and settled, whereas errors, they're like endless ways to screw up, right? So, so there's bound to be a lot more interest there. Well, I think you quote Niels Bohr. He says an expert is someone who's made all the failures in, within a narrow field, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is true. I mean, that is what expertise is about, isn't it, really? Well, I mean, you still leave open the question of, right, you know, when do you kind of adjust course, right? So patience means that, you know, you fail, fail, try again, try again, fail, fail, try again. And, and at some point that turns into stubbornness, right? So when Max Planck said that, you know, progress happens in science over, you know, every time there's one funeral at a time. Now, presumably, you know, that means that these people are just stubborn and you need to have some, you know, new person come in. You also don't want to abandon something at the first sign of, of failure. So, you know, I teach business primarily. And so, we in Silicon Valley, you know, we have a whole ideology around failure. We have a whole investment approach around failure. And, you know, we, we talk about entrepreneurs and we say, you know, you, you're looking for an entrepreneur that is like irrationally stubborn and just persists and persists and persists. But then we also say, yeah, but of course they need to pivot. <laughs> you know, they need to be able to pivot, you know, whenever they, their hypothesis turns out to be incorrect, they need to, you know, switch gears. So, I mean, presumably there's, there's an optimal amount of patience and then there's an optimal amount of course correction. I mean, that should be, I think, at the core of science, you know, and, and scientific instruction, yeah. right? What I'd say is presumably there is an optimal amount, but nobody knows it. <laughs> I mean, you know, W. Somerset Maugham once said there are three rules for writing a great novel, but nobody knows them. And I sort of feel the same <laughs> I sort of feel the same way about this. Yes, there's definitely an optimum 
there is an optimum threshold when perseverance turns into stubbornness, when perseverance works against you as opposed to for you. And you also don't want to have a, somebody who just gives up at the first sign of difficulty either or something like that. But where that line is and whether there's actually a line as opposed to many, many different lines, depending on what you're doing and what you're about. You know, if we knew that formula, yeah, that would be fabulous. But I don't think we do. I think you learn those things, and some people learn them better than others. As you know, there are really there are people who latch on to some idea they've had, and they just cannot give it up, no matter what. They can't give it up, even though it's proven again and again to be presumably the wrong path or this or that. And what can you do? And then, so I'm for a little, I'm for a fair amount of perseverance. As I say, I think patience is important. Things do tend to happen slowly and, and unpredictably. I once asked a mathematician in my ignorance course, they were the most tricky people I have come talk to students about what they don't know, because even what they don't know is complicated, you know, and difficult in its own language. But they have this phrase, they always say, well, I, I started off on this project because I found it interesting. I thought there was it was an interesting project, whatever. So I said, well, what makes a project interesting to a mathematician? And she said, well, it's when you go in a little ways and you begin to see, oh, that it connects up with this thing and that thing, what somebody else was doing that you didn't expect. And you begin to see all these connections. And then you know it's interesting. If you go in a ways and you don't see any connections for a, a while, you just back out, but you don't leave it. One day, other people will do things and those connections may appear. And that's also important. Sometimes the stuff you put in the drawer for later is as important as what you actually succeed on while that's festering away for a while. Now, now it's hard to know ahead of time, right, about, you know, the connections you're going to discover. I mean, when we think about your work, right, the olfaction in salamanders, right? I mean, th this sounds like the kind of thing yeah. that William Proxmire would have, you know, given the, the Golden Fleece <laughs> Award to, right? You know, they'd be like, yes, who cares? He was going by that time. <laughs> right? But of course, as you know, I mean, you, yep. you point out, it's got a lot of important, uh, there's lots and lots of interesting insights that you can get from this to go beyond, well beyond salamanders, right? Yes. I mean, this is a principle of biology in general, but of much of science, which is a lot. Of, I mean, if you're working on the brain, it's just too damn complicated. Let's face it. I mean, you, you just three pounds or three and a half pounds of electrified pate up there that, I, you know, it's just really complicated. It's a, what is it about a little less than a hundred billion cells and a trillion connections. It's just impossible, you know. So you, you need to look for a somewhat simplified version of it. And we've made great strides by doing that. I think it was Albert Einstein who said, you always want to have a model that's simple, but never too simple, you know, simple enough, but not too simple. And that's what you want to look for is some model system, as it were, that's not quite as complicated as the thing you want to know about, but has the same fundamental principles running it. And then you have a chance to find some things out and hopefully move up the ladder a bit, you know. Now, you, you talk about serendipity. I mean, this is one of my favorite topics. You know, I, yes. I wasn't around when Horace Walpole coined the term, but I've definitely been thinking about it my whole life. And a lot of people wonder, is there a science to serendipity? I mean, certainly the people in social media are trying to figure out how to develop a serendipity algorithm, right? The folks in organ yeah. organizational design are trying to figure out how to, you know, create these serendipitous encounters between, you know, employees in, in different parts of the organization. And we know that in science, if you have lots of different authors from lots of different domains, you know, you're more likely to get some interesting insights. But how can you kind of systematize that? Like, how can you orchestrate some serendipity in your life, the optimal amount and type of serendipity for, you know, optimizing the correct kind of failure? Well, I mean, I think what you started out saying in the very beginning, actually, is to me the key to serendipity, which is the pastoral line that chance favors the prepared mind. So I think serendipity is, is a real thing, although I think we overrate it just a bit, in the sense that lawyers don't make serendipitous scientific discoveries, and scientists don't make serendipitous legal discoveries. I mean, that's just not the way it happens, right? And so you have to be working on something. You have to be working usually pretty hard at it, but open to seeing something that somebody else hasn't seen before, or open to the fact that the the dish of mold you left on, or the dish of cells you left on the windowsill has this mold in it that seems to be killing them, and voila, you have penicillin, you know. Pasteur himself, of course, was famously the beneficiary of a great deal of serendipity, which is why I think he said chance favors 
the prepared mind. I think that's all you can do with serendipity. I do think sometimes we overrate the idea of what I guess is these days called interdisciplinary. That is, to, there's this notion that creativity, which sometimes serendipity, creativity, we use sort of almost interchangeably, this idea of suddenly something pops up, some aha moment from almost nothing. And this idea that we get to that by associating things that are not normally associated, I think that's one pathway. But I also think it's sometimes just as effective to dissociate things that have been held together too long, that we've connected for too long, and see what happens when you bust them apart a little bit. You know, the word debacle, debacle, however one pronounces it, which sounds like a total disaster, actually comes from an old French word, debacle, mean ice-breaking. So breaking a new pathway through a previously solid region. Well, that's, you know, breakthrough is what we call serendipitous sometimes. Oh, we had a serendipitous breakthrough. And so I think that, I think we should take that more literally, the idea of a breakthrough, that you have to break shit up sometimes, not just put stuff together and hope that, you know, it matches up somehow. Well, you mentioned that whenever, when we, when we give Nobel prizes to scientists, we usually say something about how they, you know, opened up a, a new field of research, right? Rather than just sort of saying, you know, they, they discovered X, it's more like, you know, they launched this whole new kind of line of inquiry, right? And that's, that's what really they deserve credit for. Yes. Of course, that's the Nobel Academy, the Swedish Academy maybe taking more credit for itself than they sometimes deserve. But yes, that's, you know, they're very invested in the Nobel Prize and keeping it to be a, an important thing. More, It's never a lifetime achievement award or something like that. It's a specific discovery and one that somehow or another, yes, opens up whole new vistas. That hasn't always worked out for them, by the way. You know, one of the most infamous Nobel Prizes given was for the invention of the lobotomy, a surgical procedure now known as a lobotomy by a Portuguese neurosurgeon whose name always flies out of my head the moment I'm about to say it. But anyway, he developed this surgical procedure, the lobotomy, and was awarded the Nobel Prize for it. It was seen in its day as a godsend because we had these people who were uncontrollably psychotic and they were forced, consigned to live forever, you know, in these horrible snake pit kind of institutions, tied up, straight jacketed up. So this lobotomy was at least seen as a way to make them peaceful and manageable, and you could send them home to live with their families. I mean, now we find it horrifying, but the Nobel Committee thought it was a game changer. So now we do it with drugs, of course, but but at least they're reversible. Lobotomies are not so reversible. Right. Now, look, we talk a lot right now about the replicability crisis, right? And it's sort of seen as a, you know, I think a lot of people see this as a real crisis, right? They they see the, the fact that it's so hard to repeat and replicate what allegedly were these grand discoveries. This seems to undermine the integrity of the scientific process. I think you offer a little bit of a nuanced view, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, you know, what do we mean when we talk about the integrity of of science? I am um, sometimes in my class referred to this example, and I can't remember where I got it from, this example of Dr. Dumkopf, who uh, discovered that roaches, you know, hear with their legs, right? And I, and I remember, I don't know if you've heard this story, but I, I, I tell them how, you know, so doc, Dr. Dumkopf, he decided to run this experiment where he, you know, put a roach on, on a table and he, you know, he banged the table with his fist and the roach ran off and then he, you know, ripped one of the legs off and each stage he wrote very carefully down exactly what he did, you know, and then I removed one of the legs of the, of the roach and I banged the table and the roach moved more slowly. And then finally, when he gets down to removing all six legs, you know, he bangs the table and the roach doesn't move. And therefore he concludes that roaches here with their, their legs. And so, you know, I ask my students, I say, you know, is this a good scientist or a, or a bad scientist? And they say, well, he's an idiot scientist, right? He's a horrible scientist. Like, no, 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 this guy's a really good scientist because his methods section is so transparent, you know, that he, and he wrote down every single step. And that's what makes him a good scientist because somebody else can come in and come up with an alternative explanation that fits the, the data that he, he recorded and then, you know, try to replicate the experiment. So when we talk about the integrity of science, is it about, you know, know, making, coming up with the right explanations, or is it about, you know, using the right methods? Well, of course, both of those things are important. So the first thing to say about the replication issue and integrity is that the inability to replicate an experiment, which occurs on a relatively regular basis, and I don't think 
personally is a problem. We'll get to that in a moment. But an experiment that's not replicated is often conflated with fraud. And those are two different things. So replication and whether an experiment or a particular result can be replicated by other laboratories versus whether or not some scientists fraudulently made up data and put it out there, those are two different issues. Fraud, I have no time for. It's the only thing that I would accept capital punishment as the correct sort of response to. I mean, scientific fraud really does undermine the integrity of everything we do. So for that, I have no time. But that's different than an experiment not being replicated. There are many reasons an experiment can't be replicated. And those failures are often, I think, very informative. The way I said before, it tells you what you didn't know you didn't know. One group does this experiment and is actually doing something they don't even know they're doing that's critical for the success of the experiment. They think it's something else, like, you know, the roaches here with their legs, because it looks like that. It looks like it could be that. That's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis, in fact, right? It turns out not to be the one, because when another lab tries to do the experiment, they don't happen to do what that lab did to set it up, whatever. I mean, there have been cases where it depended on the detergent you used to wash the glassware, because one detergent had aluminum silicate in it, and there was aluminum iron residue on the glass. And that turned out to be the critical factor. But who knew that? Who's going to put down the detergent I used to wash the glass in my methods section? Or you did the, the frog the frog experiment in, in the cold weather, right? Yes, yes, precisely exactly the same thing, right? Doing the experiment in the, in the cold night, in the middle of the night, versus everybody else trying to replicate it in the middle of the day when the labs are heated and the enzymes are much more active. And so, you, you know, you, uh, somebody once said, you can, you can give Julia Childs and me the same recipe, but you're not going to get the same dinner. And that's the way it is. And that's important, though. I mean, those are not trivial replication failures. Those are really useful replication failures. That's how you finally zero in on what's critical and what's important in an experiment. And I think they should, I mean, this original article that started this whole office by recently retired executives, I think from Amgen, one of them was from Amgen, I think both of them were, but I'm not sure. And they looked over these 56 papers on cancer that had been published in Nature and other major journals. They never, by the way, identified the papers that they looked at. So you can actually replicate the, the experiment these two guys did to show that replication was a problem. But anyway, they used 56 papers, of which apparently six or seven were replicable, and the rest they couldn't replicate the results, or other labs couldn't, they couldn't replicate the results. And they called that a dismal 11% success rate. I have to say... I would challenge those two executives to go back to Amgen and look in the notebooks of their researchers and see if their success rate is much higher than 11%, especially working at the very frontiers of cancer research. I think 11% is a potential bonanza. You know, I understand that's not good when things fail. That's not the best way, but we're not that smart. We're doing the best we can. And the best we can turns out to be pretty good, doesn't it? Well, you, you cited Peter Norvig, right, talking about kind of corporate memory, right, and how, you know, oftentimes if you fail, then you say, okay, I failed, that's not going to work, you know, you go in a different direction, but there's got to be some periodic revisiting of those failures. You, you also suggest that people go back and look at articles from Science and Nature from, you know, 10 years ago, and that's where you're likely to find some, some interesting avenues of research because, you know, can you maybe talk about, like, what is the role of memory here in, and should we, you know, sometimes intentionally kind of forget things? I think Peter Norvig's point was that, you know, startups are going to succeed at a higher rate because companies think that they've figured something out when, in fact, it might not be as clear-cut as they think. Yeah, it was, it was a great example. I mean, he worries about this all the time because he's with Google. And, you know, so they have new, bright, young minds in there. And then they have the older crowd that's been through it. And so on the one hand, you want their experience, of course. But on the other hand, I've seen this in laboratories, you know, where new graduate students come in, they have a great experiment. And some postdoc who's, you know, been around now for 12 or 13 years or something says, no, nah, nah, I tried that. I tried that. That doesn't work. So, you know, the thing is, since that postdoc tried it, many new things have come online, many new technologies and ideas. And anyway, that postdoc may not have been any good for who knows what reasons. 
So I think that's one of the reasons that it's so important to report failures and negative results, because the more often you report the same negative result, the more trustworthy it is. It's not trustworthy the first time. Somebody fails to get a result doing an experiment the first time, maybe they use the wrong equipment, maybe they have crummy hands, I don't know, they, just, they didn't pay attention. There's a gazillion reasons why they might not have gotten a result, including it's not a good experiment. I mean, yes, it was a failed experiment, but maybe in somebody else's hands it works. And so you don't want to stop other hands from picking the experiment up. So it's another one of these tricky balance issues, right? You want the wisdom of experience, but you don't want it to paralyze people either. You talk about kind of the, the danger of thinking that we can kind of, you know, cure ignorance, right? And if science is about enlightenment and the achievement of some, you know, level of knowledge and wisdom, this is basically a recipe for, you know, shutting down science. But I think isn't that sort of the, the popular conception that you go from the darkness into the light and that there is this kind of, you know, progress and, and ultimately you achieve some level of knowledge that makes you wise, that makes you an expert and that you can kind of hang up the cleats at that point, right? Isn't that sort of how we think about it? Well, like it or not, you have to hang up the cleats at some point, I suppose, or the cleats kind of hung up for you. So yes, and I think progress is a very important idea. Uh, it's a new one, by the way. So Progress, I think we all have the idea that progress has been around for since human beings were painting pictures on caves or something like that. But in point of fact, progress has been extremely slow and virtually imperceptible for most of the history of humanity. For all but the past, I don't know, 10 or 20 generations at most. You know, I mean, the first tool that men used was the Acheulean hand axe. And that was a technology that lasted for 1.2 million years. I mean, 1.2 million years, can you imagine? Even the Bronze Age, which many historians take as the first technology because you can't dig bronze out of the ground. You have to smelt it from tin and copper, I think, and it requires high temperatures. So there's technology. The Bronze Age lasted for over 2,000 years. That's 50 generations of people that were born, grew up, and died in virtually the same technology. Unimaginable to us today. I mean, two weeks I'm behind. I go for on a vacation for two weeks and I'm, I come back and I'm way behind, you know? So, and of course, one can say a lot of things about progress. You know, we hate the bomb, but we love anesthesia. I understand progress is better for some people than others, but in general, it's better for everybody, you know, more so for most people than others and all the rest of that. But it's not even progress itself, it's the idea of progress. That's something we now take for granted that really, Five generations ago was not taken for granted. Five generations ago, you did what your parents did and your kids were going to do what you did. There was no movement. You know, in the 1600s, people never strayed more than about five miles from the place they were born unless they were conscripted in the army and sent off to a war somewhere. And so it's the idea of progress that I think is important. Now, does that mean that science just, you know, that's what it does? It constantly progresses and, and accumulates knowledge. No, I don't think so. What I, what I like to think is that it accumulates better questions. That, yeah, we get knowledge and the facts are important and they're very useful and we can do lots of things with them. We make up cures and gadgets that we all really enjoy and we like, and that's great. But in the end, what we really want to come out of an experiment is a better question, a more sophisticated question, a more interesting question. Those are the best experiments, the ones that lead you to another question not to the end of the line. So what does it mean? I mean, is this limited to scientists or should everybody learn to become kind of a connoisseur of, of ignorance? And I, I really like this term, the connoisseur of, of, of <laughs> ignorance, right? What, what would that mean kind of as one goes through one's kind of daily life? I mean, I think a lot of these principles that we talk about in the scientific domain apply to just your ordinary life domain. So for instance, you talk about you know, post-mortems, right? So whenever there's a plane crash or whenever somebody dies in a hospital, right? Or even if it's not a specific occurrence, you talk about how, you know, these surgeons would get together on a regular basis and, and discuss their, their failures. I think that a lot of people in their lives, when they make a mistake or there's some kind of failure, they, they just kind of want to flush it down the toilet and, you know, walk away from it and not really spend a lot of time thinking about it because it, it kind of makes them feel bad. I mean, I was uh, in my house the other day, I had a relative who 
was grilling some ribs on the grill and they caught fire and destroyed the ribs and the grill. And, you know, she was just, she was, she just, she just want to move on from that and put it behind her. And I was like, no, like, let's, let's, let's just spend a few minutes trying to figure out like, Hey, what exactly happened so that, you know, we don't lose the next grill and the next batch of ribs. But I think a lot of people, you know, just doing like a debrief is a painful experience, right? How do we get more comfortable with that? It's a, that's a very good question, and I don't know where we learn it from. I, I always use this Gertrude Stein quote. I mean, always enigmatic and all the rest of that Gertrude Stein, but she said, a real failure needs no excuse. It is an end in itself. And being able to understand failure that way, I think, would be tremendously valuable for all of us. I don't think it's easy to understand failure that way, but really, those are the failures you want. And they won't all be that. Sometimes you fail because you screwed up, right? Then you should apologize and say, all right, I'm not going to let that happen again. And you shouldn't let it happen again. But the better failures are the ones that really don't need an excuse. You couldn't have seen this coming. You didn't see it coming. And there's and it's interesting. I mean, it failed for some reason that you had no idea this could fail for. And it's a valuable lesson. It's a valuable piece of data. It's you know, it's there. It's part of life. Are we ever going to have a fail-free life? I don't think so. I mean, you know, even robots mm -hmm. fail. So should we have a failure budget? Not at the, just at the individual level, but, you know, at the corporate level. I mean, should we, you know, a lot of times I, the way I think about sometimes is I have like a screw up budget. And, you know, if I do something like, I don't know, I get a speeding ticket, like I just say, okay, well, I'm allowed to have a couple of, I got a screw up budget. I can have a, you know, and I, I've already set aside some cash for that. You know, like we have loan loss reserves for uh, loans as a bank. I mean, you know, should companies just think about budgeting it into the process and maybe even at the annual budget meeting say, hey, we need to increase our failure budget rather than cutting it. Like we need to increase it. Well, I mean, I would be in favor of that in general. Yes, I think that would be a very wise thing for a forward looking company to do. It's going to happen anyway. If you don't stigmatize it, you're more likely to get people to take a few risks here and there that they know they're not going to be penalized for. As again, it's this idea of having non-catastrophic failures. If you make failure a catastrophe, then of course I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to take any chance at all. But if you can destigmatize failure to some extent, I think that's a great idea having a budget for it because it's there anyway, whether you like it or not. You know, it's in the budget, whether you consider it a 10% contingency that you stick on the budget or however you want to call it. I think it would make more sense to call it, well, this is the failure budget. You know, I talk about this a little bit with NIH. NIH has put aside like 3.5% of their budget every year for what they call a high risk, high, what is it? High risk, high payoff grants. So the likelihood is very high that they'll fail, but if what they should- like moonshots. Yeah, there would be a great payoff. And I, But it's 3.5% of the budget. So I'm thinking, well, that's great, but what does that mean for the other 96.5% of the NIH budget that they just want us to do incremental crap that won't make much difference one way or the other? I don't think that's what we want either, is it? So, you know, there has to be a balance in there and we might as well face, as you say, the fact that it's going to cost a certain amount every year for screwing up. And, you know, you could not get a speeding ticket by not driving. That wouldn't be a good idea. Right. And I think you say like a clinical trial is not should not be thought of as the canonical you know, version of a scientific inquiry, right? This is, but this, I think, is how people think about, you know, what science does. They think of something like a clinical trial, right? And so you say the NIH ought to maybe randomize, <laughs> build in some randomization. I want to hear more about that idea. Well, you know, the, there actually are a number of people working, in, I guess they're more philosophers than scientists. That is, they're, they work in the area of philosophy of science, but who look at funding and funding structures very carefully and all the rest of that who have proposed, made re very reasonable proposals with strong mathematical backing, by the way, statistical and mathematical predictive backing, that a lottery would work probably almost as well as what we currently do at a significantly lower price. I mean, right now, NIH and panels, you know, study what we call study sections, groups of as many as 20 scientists to come together and review grants. These grants take weeks of people's time to produce. They only succeed at a 17% or 18% rate. You have all these people coming together, reading these grants, spending hours and hours doing that. I mean, I forget what the estimate is now, but I think I had in one of the books that in the Australian health system, I think, or the Australian version of NIH, which is easier to look at, it was smaller. 
something like uh, 500 man hours a year per person or something were being essentially used up on grant writing. And the question is, was that worth it? How much money would you save by not having these review panels, by letting people, you know, the man hours involved or the person hours involved in writing grants, just make a lottery system out of it? I mean, if all you're going to fund is 17 to 20%, it's basically a lottery system anyway, to tell you the truth. I mean, is there really a difference between the grant at the 18th percentile versus one at the 19th percentile or the 20th or the 22nd? So, yes, I think a certain amount of randomness wouldn't be a bad idea. You know, you get a lot out of randomness. Evolution works that way. And look what we have, you know. Right. I like to come up with some pretty cool. Yeah, I like the idea of you say that evolution wouldn't happen without copying mistakes, right? <laughs> so, you know. Absolutely. I mean, error is really critical to evolution. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then last thing I want to touch on is this idea of Copernican cognitivism, right? I found this to be a, a sort of an intriguing idea, right? Which is kind of all about, you know, decentering our thinking from, you know, the models that we currently are living within. C could you talk about that? Like, how could you cultivate that? How could you, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. You know, the odd thing is I, I don't exactly believe it anymore. I know I use that term. I actually, the, I borrowed the term from a famous philosopher of science at the uh, University of Pittsburgh, whose name also has just flown out of my head. Think of it, oh, Nicholas Rescher, who coined the term cognitive Copernicanism is this question as to whether we just don't have the cognitive abilities to see certain things. I mean, they'll, you know, can we really imagine a, you know, 25 dimensional universe. I mean, I can't think of 25 dimensions, but there are mathematicians who have no trouble working in multiple dimensions that way. They just do the math, you know. So are we limited in some way that we, you know, where we'll never be able to know certain things? And I don't know that I really believe that anymore. Uh, J.B.S. Haldane, a very famous evolutionary biologist in the 1950s, I suppose, or even the 1930s, once said in a speech, I have no doubt that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, it is queerer than we can suppose. But in the meantime, since 1927, when I think he said that, we have imagined some pretty queer things right? I mean, all these crazy particles, the internet, for example. I mean, imagine that, you know, 50 years ago, if you had asked somebody, do you think the internet's a good idea or not? What do you think? They would look at you like you were crazy. What internet? What is that? What are you talking about? I mean, the idea of plugging two computers together 50 years ago would have made no more sense than plugging two refrigerators together. For what? What would come of that? And so... You know, I think we can't know what's out there on the horizon. We can't know what we could eventually know because we don't know what we don't know now. I mean, that's what keeps it exciting, if you ask me. That's what keeps it interesting. So I like to think of it as being, let's put it this way. If there is a limit, I don't think we're anywhere close to it. So why act like we are? Might as well act like it's limitless because from our vantage point currently, it is well, Stuart, there's a lot of great stuff in both these books, right? Talk about farting around, talk about night science, right? <laughs> talk about pluralism. You talk about all sorts of cool stuff. So uh, I highly recommend both these books, Ignorance, How It Drives Science, Failure, Why Science is So Successful. Thanks for joining me, Stuart. Greg, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. I can't tell how much I enjoyed this. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.